Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of Deep Dive, I'm joined by Dr. Bradley Onishi. He's a scholar of religion and the co-host of the Straight White American Jesus podcast. His writing has been published in the New York Times, LA Review of Books, and Religion and Politics, among other outlets. He holds degrees from Azuzu Pacific University, Oxford University, and Le Institut Catholique de Paris, which I hope I pronounced somewhat correctly. And he received his PhD from the University of California at Santa Barbara. He's a TEDx speaker and the author, editor, or translator of four previous books. He teaches at the University of San Francisco and lives in the Bay Area with his wife and daughter and a new one on the way. And I want to thank you for being on the show. We're going to be discussing in detail, in great detail, his latest work, which is Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. So, you know, light episode, you know, nothing at all heavy. Um, Thanks again for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. And we'll make it as fun as we can. I promise. Yeah. You know, (laughs) this is going to be a a tough, tough road to hoe (laughs) to make this uh, a fun topic. But I think it's a it's a very um, germane topic and and has been since the formation of this country. So, you know, it's hard for me to figure out exactly where to start. But I guess the beginning is usually a good place. So white Christian nationalism is a is a term and a topic that you see more of, but yet not enough of, if that makes sense. So why don't we start with just your take on white Christian nationalism, what it means, kind of give us a little bit of a framework. Uh, So I think Christian nationalism in a nutshell is the belief that Christian people should be privileged somehow in the United States, that if you're a Christian, that somehow gives you a kind of privileged position uh, politically culturally, economically, socially, in any sense. A Christian nationalist will often believe that the country was built for Christians and by Christians. And as a result, it should remain with a kind of Christian ethos or Christian character, whatever whatever definition of Christianity you might have. The white part is actually really important because there are people of color, there are Black Americans who are Christian nationalists. Uh, we have new survey data that shows percentages on that. And so I'm not denying that white folks in the country are the only ones who are Christian nationalists. However, when we dig into the stories that they tell about the country, they tell very different stories. So if you if you talk to, on the whole, according to the data, black Christian nationalists or an Asian American Christian nationalist, they're often going to tell you a story about the future, uh, what the country could be, if it ever lived up to its creed of liberty and equality and independence for all people. When you talk to a white Christian nationalist, they tell you a different story. They tell you a story based on nostalgia. One that says the country used to be great. The country used to be a city on a hill. The country used to be a place that embodied God's plan for the world. But, you know, somewhere along the way, it all went wrong. And what I point out in the book is that most often the white Christian nationalist points to the 1950s as when it went wrong. Well, the 1950s is, of course, before things like the Civil Rights Movement, Voting Rights Act, immigration reform, queer liberation, Stonewall, women's freedom movements in the 1960s, the Loving Case, I could go on and on and on. So when you're telling me you want, you think the 1950s are the time when America was great, I hear from that white Christian nationalist a nostalgia for a time when the social order was dominated by white people, white Christian people, and everyone else in their minds kind of fell into line where they should be. And so those are the outlines of white Christian nationalism, and I think that's how they're distinctive from uh, other forms of Christian nationalism in the country. Well, I was jotting down some notes as you were as you were talking because I've never heard that there were like black Christian nationalism before, right? So I think maybe let's also take a moment to define Christian nationalism. And I'm so I'm going to give you a a reason why that was surprising to me because I know lots of religious black people. I am not one of them. 
I am firmly in the atheist camp, right? But you know, my parents are 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 religious, and you know, there's there's what I call like a baseline religious spirit in Black people that I would actually argue doesn't exist in run of the mill white people, right? Like it seems like if I was looking at a scale of like religious, very religious versus not religious, like there's more black people clustered on that very religious where it is a active part of their life than white people. Even if those white people would say like, oh yeah, I'm Baptist or I'm whatever, Presbyterian, whatever black white people do in church, you know? Um, so again, this is imperfect, but like when I'm out with my, with my friends and stuff, you know, they like pray before meals and shit. Like they kind of do all kinds of black shit. And I've been out with tons of white people and they've never prayed before meal, right? So I'm, I'm using these sort of like anecdotal evidence to kind of speak to what I think is sort of the rank and file, not so much those on the extreme. So when I hear white Christian nationalism vis-a-vis your definition, I'm like, I don't know any Black people that are Christian and also care about like America like that, unless they are like conservative and then they're weirdos anyway. <laughs> Um, you know what I mean? Oh, I do. Like, no. nor- like normal black people <laughs> ain't really that patriotic, <laughs> right? Like they ain't thinking about like, oh, America yeah. in this, like, like they're like, well, motherfucker, we're here. Yeah. We paid our dues. So yeah, we want this shit to work right. Yeah. But yeah. we ain't that into it. Yeah. 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 No. Th- <laughs> so I, I, everything you're saying, I, I, I take your point and let me offer some, some response that maybe will clarify some of what I said. So you know, when sociologists try to figure out if someone's a Christian nationalist, they're going to ask you questions like, do you think, you know, America's policies in terms of its its internal or foreign policies should be uh, influenced by Christian values, right? So if, if you ask that question, you might get some of the black folks that you're talking about who are like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian and I think loving your neighbor is important. So maybe maybe I should say, yes, I think our policy should be influenced by Christian values because I think loving your neighbor is a good thing, or I think obeying your parents, right? So you can kind of see how um, you end up with some folks who, as you're saying, are not the kinds that are walking around with American flag cargo shorts and uh, you know all about uh, patriotism. Who might tell you, "Oh yeah, I, I think the 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 country would be better if we had some actual Christian values." And what I mean by that is not you know blah blah blah, but actual like people who believe and practice Christianity in the ways that, you know, I think are actually real. I, I don't think it demands a ton of patriotism to answer that way in a survey. And that's why I always, always distinguish between white Christian nationalists and everyone else, because the white Christian nationalists, when you ask them about the United States and, and America, they're going to give you all of that patriotic, rah, rah, you know, God and country, you know, all that stuff that you would expect. And then I think the second thing to say is Christian nationalism is is often best described as a cultural identity. And what I mean by that is, especially for white people, the idea that you are a, uh, a white person who's Christian, posts Bible verses on their Facebook, you know, has a God and country sticker on their truck. And then you say, hey, nice. Okay, pal, great. Good for you. Like, what church do you go to? And they're like, oh, I don't, I don't actually haven't been to church in like two years. And I don't actually do, right? Because it's like this identity marker right? Christian, God, country thing. And you're like, oh, cool. So how often do you read the Bible? And they're like, mm, not now, maybe never, like once a year. You know what I mean? And so you can kind of see how it's like not religious practice. It's like cultural identity. It's it's a story they're telling about themselves in the country that they can fit into, you know? Um, so I, I don't know if that makes sense of what you're saying or I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. No, it, it totally makes sense. It's because I think these things are, are fascinating and, and we're going to get more into you know the the foundational history, which I which I think is is one of the things that the book does really well, right? Where I think if you are someone who has a what I call a holistic view of American history, the there's no surprises, right? There's more like names, like there's more names and shit that I that I didn't know, but the arc of of the thinking very familiar with, right? But I think those who don't have 
a holistic view of of America's history will be like left with like, wow, I didn't know that, right? Which is a good thing. I but I but I do believe that's that in and of itself is one of the challenges, right? That I think the average white person like picking this up, right? Because I, I look at stuff like this and I'm like, I, I read it because I'm super interesting and it's interested and it's an interesting topic. But generally, most black people know that white people are crazy, right? So like, we're pretty much, it's just how crazy are you, right? Like, where do you fall on the crazy scale? The reason why I say this, perfect example, you start off talking about January 6th and the insurrection, right? And everybody white I know, living in like a New York, quote unquote, liberal enclave was, oh my God, I <laughs> can't believe what I'm seeing. The country's torn itself asunder, right? Like they were all like, you know, on TV, you know, like those types and like Van Jones, right? Like cornballs like Van Jones. We're all like clutching their pearls. And like my boys, we were like, that's just white people being doing white people shit, right? Like you could have shown me January 6th or you could have shown me the Celtics won a championship, right? Or Alabama won the national title that I'm going to see a bunch of crazy white people burning shit down, turning over a truck, being shirtless. I'm like, okay, that's, this is what they do. They wreck shit. <laughs> right. So I think like a lot of black people read this and be like, okay, they just crazy. You know, <laughs> what you said there about a holistic view of, of history. I, you said it so well, it like, it's like you, you learn new names, but you already know the characters, right? Like you already, you already know, like, Oh, I didn't know this name, but I know where this character is going. I know the character arc already. Like we can probably sketch this out, right? And I think that's what the book tries to do. You know, from the 1960s forward, it's basically trying to show how you can use a Christianity that helps to cover your whiteness in public in a way that helps you escape explicit full frontal attacks of racism and and misogyny and xenophobia, at least for a time, right? And so, you know, one of the examples I always give, you know, speaking of New York, right, is there's this, you know, after the murder of George Floyd, there's a there's a, uh, a game between the Mets and another team. It's at home. It's at the Mets house. And mm -hmm. everyone kneels before the game. Okay, we're used to this. It's pro sports. These are the sort of things people were doing after, um, after George Floyd was murdered. One guy doesn't kneel. And, you know, baseball teams, 40, 50 guys, all the coaches, it's like, you know, pushing 100 people kneeling. You got one guy not. After the game, reporter asked the guy, hey, why didn't you kneel? And he says, I can't kneel. I'm a Christian. And the reporter's kind of like, uh, what am I supposed to do with this? Because if I say as a reporter, well, what does that have anything to do with it? I'm probably going to be on Tucker Carlson that night as like a God-hating member of the media, just like some sports reporter trying to do their job. And here I am. Tucker Carlson saying, I, I hate Jesus and stuff. So the reporter leaves it alone. A couple of weeks later, a reporter comes back. It's like, hey, you know, you said you couldn't kneel because you're a Christian. What church do you go to? And dude says, I don't go to church, right? So for me, that was like, if that guy says, I, don't, I didn't kneel because I don't care about police brutality. I, I didn't kneel because I don't care about black people. He's out, right? The Mets are going to kick him out. He's going to be suspended. There's going to be a whole... But if he says, I, I can't kneel because I'm a Christian, his Christianity is a cover for his white supremacy. In, if you ask me about the book, I'd be like, I tried to show how that's worked when we talk about family values, when we talk about reproductive rights, when we talk about schools from 1960 till now, that is what Christianity has done to help white folks, right? Uh, enable white folks to play the characters that you're talking about that they've always played in American history, but avoid, at least in some cases, the kind of full-fledged open charges of oh you're just a you're just a white supremacist or you're just a racist right and when they, when you say that they're like no I'm I'm a God-fearing Christian how dare you I I love Jesus I'm just trying to protect my family and it's very effective unfortunately you know it's funny that in a baseball context right because you know baseball players they're a lot of Latino baseball yep. players oh yeah right yep. and again as I as I draw with wide brushes of stereotypes you know when i watch baseball games i see a lot of motherfuckers with crosses and you know all all kinds of stuff because you know they tuck it all they kiss it tuck it inside the jersey right before they go to go to bat so i'm like damn they pretty religious and there's a lot of jewels on that cross right so it seems like kneeling was not necessarily the issue 
when it comes to particularly on a baseball field because they literally have their Christianity around their necks, right? So it's funny because when I re- when I, I'm going through the book, and like I said, it's not funny, but I'm thinking about the title, and I'm glad you brought up schools, right? Because I do agree with everything that that these things are covers, right? And so I wonder to myself quietly at night, how much of of this is a white Christian thing, and how much of this is just a white thing? Right. Because, you know, again, I talked about being in New York. New York got the most segregated school system in the country. Right. There's a lot of like, you know, Democrats and liberals, you know, that they're liberal until their school, their kids got to go to school with black kids. Then all of a sudden, not so liberal anymore. Right. And, And again, they're not Christian. Right. So when I when I read these kind of histories. Right. And I remember reading about like. Virginia literally shutting down their school system for like years in order to not have segregation, um, desegregation rather. And I look at at how parents all throughout New York City fight and argue to make sure that their kids don't go to school with black kids, black and brown kids. I don't really see too much of a difference in these two realities, right? Like, yeah, one might have the truck, one might be, you know, going out to the Hamptons but they's the same people to me, right? So how do we cut through that? Because when I read this title, right, and I see like extremist history of white Christian nationalism, I feel like that gives regular white people who are very anti-black cover, right? Because they can say to themselves, oh, well, I'm not really Christian and I'm not an extremist. I would have voted for Obama a third time if I could have, right? But, you know, I just don't want my kid to go to school, go to a public school, right? So. They're kind of the same people. I don't know if there's a, there, uh, yeah, there is a question in there. Like, aren't they all just anti-Black? Yeah. The question is, is it just not about anti-Blackness and, and racism and white supremacy? So I think for me, I'm here all day, every day to talk about the white moderate, the white quote unquote liberal being complicit in upholding white supremacy, period. Right. I'm here for that conversation all day, every day. And I think for me, the the reason I would talk to the white Christian nationalists in one way and talk to the white moderate that you're talking about, the white quote unquote liberal, whatever whatever label we're going to use for the people you just described in New York City, is their actions manifest uh, white supremacy in comparable ways. Their approaches and worldviews are different. So I've probably right as somebody who's mixed race, right? I have a I have a, a Japanese American dad and a white mom. Uh, if I go talk to that white person who's you're talking about the Hamptons and the private school, I gotta I gotta approach them one way and say, you know, have you seen Get Out? Because you kind of you seem kind of like the dad who would have voted for Obama a third time. The people I'm talking about in the book are going to convince themselves, and they're going to convince the people in their churches. They're going to convince the people alongside them at the school board meetings that their actions are biblical, that they're doing what they're doing because it is from God. And God wants America to look a certain way. And yes, don't get me, I am not denying or somehow lifting any burden from those people in terms of white supremacy, but they get at their actions through a different pathway. And I want to decode that for people. I want to say, what is the pathway you can possibly get to the kinds of racist and xenophobic and homophobic actions and beliefs that you are manifesting by way of the teachings of Jesus. Like, how do you even do that? And so that's what I want to decode for, for folks. And, and I also would say that they're overwhelmingly organized. They have political machinery and networks and engines that mean that they win a lot when it comes to state legislatures and governor's races and mayoral races. So we like we got to figure out that. Like, how how is that machinery running? How is it organized? And how do you combat it, you know? I 100% agree that they are extremely organized, but not to the extent that we can't find another organization if we had a counter narrative. And I, and I think that's why I spend so much time talking about and, and kind of juxtaposing the, the two realities, A, because it's kind of funny, but in, in that there is truth in that, right? Where I feel that there's a, a weird blending of the Christian story of America and what I would call like a more secular story of America, but both are very 
religious, right? Just in kind of different ways. But I think the person, this white Christian nationalist comes to this story from a very biblical perspective. But I think to those white folks that I kind of, again, made the little joke about, like, they're not that religious. I think their religion is America, right? So they they believe this founding father shit, you know, anything against that is sort of an, an anathema. You can't really, you know, the constitution, you know, like they get, they just get locked into this shit that I think, and again, paint with a super broad brush here, but I think like the average Joe Schmo, like white American person honestly thinks that like America is better than any place else. Right. Like I'm not, you know, not everybody, but I think just that average person is kind of like, well, you know, yeah, sure. There are cool things in other parts of the world, but this shit's kind of the best shit. Right. And, and that's a kind of religion. Well, it's I think it's a religion of American exceptionalism. You can adhere to the religion of American exceptionalism, even if you're not a Christian. So that like, you know, that the person in New York City you're talking about, they got the twelve dollar smoothie they just bought and the you know, the $500 pair of sneakers and they're going to the Hamptons on the weekend and all that. For the most part, right, folks like that have benefited from the economic and political systems of the United States in terms of its, uh, the way it's been set up to benefit white people for how long? For for 400 years. They may be like, no, I, I meditate. I, I go to yoga. I don't, what? I don't do Christianity. That's so retrograde. I'm, I'm over, I'm so more, much more enlightened than that. I went on a retreat. I just did a detox. Like, who are you? Yeah, they can still just, white supremacy and American exceptionalism are like uh, two incredibly potent drugs, right? It's really hard to like let go of those. You know, most folks, I agree with you. It's just too hard. They're like, this has benefited me. This system is built for me. So let's not criticize it too much, you know? And so we get this weird history, right? Where all the stuff you outline in the book never gets taught, right? only in like deep scholarly work like yours. But if you if you go into an average classroom, you're not getting this kind of history, right? You're you're getting founding fathers, you know, democracy was born. Yeah, we we made a couple mistakes with that whole slavery thing, but then you know, we fought a war, we kind of, you know, we did the right thing in the end, right? You know, like it's that story, right? So I think when confronted with your story, which to me starts to fill in the edges, right? Movements start to make a little bit more sense, right? And and I loved how you did this with talking about a, a figure like Barry Goldwater, right? Who in, again, just kind of standard American history, you know, blowout loser. Like, I mean, if you, if you were like, I remember when I took AP history class, every, they had like every election, right? And they would tell you like, you know, who won, how many votes they got. And it was kind of like a, a scorecard, right? And and someone like him was kind of like, oh, the dustbin of history, right? Blowout loss, this dude didn't matter. And I think what your book does really well is show that I don't know if that dude lost. You can lose, you can lose the battle and win the war. And Goldwater... Goldwater really exemplified a 1960s right-wing white conservative extremism that you're right. It got laughed out of the building in 19 Lyndon Johnson, you know, he's he's the he gets 400 something electoral votes. Goldwater just go back with your tail between your legs and and see, you know, go back to Arizona. The guys that worked for Goldwater, Paul Weirich, Richard Vigory, so many others, Dana Rohrbacher, but if we just stay with Paul Weirich, he's like 21 years old when, when Goldwater runs for president. By the time that guy's 30, he's on his way to, to founding the Council for National Policy, which if you don't know it and you're listening, just go Google that. It is a kind of umbrella organization that oversees a network of conservative institutions. Paul Weirich goes on to help found ALEC and the Heritage Foundation. I mean, he's in there with the Federalist Society at the ground level. Here's the point. He's a Christian nationalist who says, I'm going to start organizing, and I'm going to start building institutions and engines that will allow us to take back the country from all these Black folks, people of color, immigrants, refugees, independent women, queer people, because it's not theirs. They're interlopers, and, and we need to get it back. And so it's a perfect example. You lose the battle, 
But Paul Weirich is like, I'm, I'm going to win the war and we'll see at the end who's laughing. And there you go. It's a fascinating look at how these ideas have become normalized, right? That, you know, by and large, a lot of these ideas, I feel like sometimes the rest of us, quote unquote, are debating on their ideological turf rather than the other way around. And I feel that happens when there's a lack of knowledge, which you share in this book, you and others, right? And I want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk a little bit more about that foundational work, right? Because you also say in the book, like you fell into one of these types of churches, right? You had this experience and then the more you went down a a path of understanding faith, the the two messages no longer started to align, right? So I, I want you to, I want to give you an opportunity to share some of that as it relates to this foundation that has been built in these spaces. You know, for me, when I converted, I, like I said, I grew up non-religious, Japanese dad, white mom, and, you know, I get invited to church by this girlfriend in eighth grade, and it's like, all right, yeah, it's Wednesday night. Like, mom's not going to let me out of the house to see my girlfriend, but she'll let me go to church. So, you know, then I got converted. The church was 90% white, and it offered something that I think people need to understand about these spaces. It offered answers to life's most fundamental questions, and the answers were certain. There was no gray area. There was no questioning. It was just like, here's the answers to the meaning of life, to what happens after you die, to how to be a good person, to why bad things happen, all that stuff. And it also offered like robust community, right? And so when I get caught up in these spaces, it's hard to kind of say no to all that. Well, by the time I'm like 21, 22, I'm starting to read a lot. You know, I know you read all the time and you start to read a lot and you realize, hey, I think a lot of things I've been taught are from like political operatives who really wanted to make things like abortion and and foreign policy into like Christian issues and Jesus issues. And, and you know what? And this is the part about faith that I think is really important is everything I've learned is that I have like a binary answer to the most important thing. I have like certainty everywhere. And yet I'm supposed to be a person of faith. And it was only when I realized that like that form of religiosity that tries to give you certainty is not faith that I started to like, get pretty close to leaving the community. But this links up with the history you're talking about because the nostalgia for a time when life was quote unquote simple, the 1950s, the wanting to protect my kids from groomers and from things that'll make them feel bad, like books about, uh, you know, Rosa Parks and Harriet Tubman and Japanese incarceration. That whole project at church and the whole project we're seeing played out today in terms of the GOP at MAGA Nation and Ron DeSantis and all the other characters is I want protection. I want certainty. I don't want to be vulnerable to the vagaries of life. I don't want to be threatened by all these other people and their way of life and their food and their culture. And ah, just protect me, ensconce me, like put me in the safe zone. And that is why the history you're talking about never gets taught. That's why the history you're talking about is just so hard to actually get to people's ears because the whole program is safety and vulnerability and uh, certainty. And that's the goal. And I mean, it's based on fear. It's based on white fragility and it's really successful. I'm always so puzzled when, you know, again, in the media, like you mentioned, Tucker Carlson and other idiots like, like him that will say like, oh, those people over there, someone other than the average Fox News viewer, you know, they don't want you like, you know, believing in God. They don't want you praying in school. They don't, you know, all the touch points, right? They, they want to change your way of life. And when I when I hear your experience growing up and getting kind of pulled into this church, I think to myself, like, why don't people just go to like black churches, right? There's better food, <laughs> better music, you know, like, and these, like my friends that, that were religious, they were in church all the goddamn time, not just Sunday. They had like Bible school, they had church trips, you know, they was going to like the choir, all that kind of stuff. So they was in church several times a week, like the whole family would go, right? So I'm like, I don't know more church going people where that mess is like, talk about ensconced, 
Like you can't get away from it. So I'm like, why don't folks ever do that? Right? Like, why don't I ever hear that story? You know, like I, you know, until I went to like Abyssinian, you know, (laughs) I had a totally warped way. And then all of a sudden I discovered like Kirk Franklin and like good macaroni and cheese and my life turned, turned around, right? Like how do we get that conversion going? I feel like black churches have a better message and better entertainment. Oh no! I see. I, I mean, I've had this discussion with with friends recently. You know, I, I'm not. I'm a secular person, but I I live right near Japantown in here in San Jose, California, and I often go to Japantown and hang out and do stuff in the neighborhood. But you know, there's a, a historic Buddhist temple there that's been there a hundred years, and I often go hang out there for events. And yeah, you know, I, I have like friends who are secular atheists, and for them, they're like, "Well, what are you doing hanging around a temple? Come on, isn't?" It? And I'm like, "Look, there's a hell of a lot of Japanese people there. That, all those aunties just made. Do you know how much food was there?" Do you know how much food I just had with that, like Japanese aunties right now? You know what I mean? Like all the old Japanese heads, like just talking story and stuff. I'm going to do that. That's cool. I'm I'm not going to not do that. Sorry. Right. But one of the things that I think is part of what you're saying is that those white mega churches, they are preying on people. They are trying to get you there. And they especially, right. They don't mind if you're a person of color. They just don't and they're really proud of it too. If they get a, a, you know, at that church I was at, if they get an Asian family, Mexican family, black family, they're like, look at us. As long as you just don't be a person of color there, like don't bring your food, don't bring your clothes and your memories and your holidays and your rituals and your political concerns, just come and get along with the program. And, and I feel like part of it is just that active, like we're trying to get you. And this is, you know, I'll defer to you and what you, what you think here, but the black churches you're talking about, I think are are not necessarily thinking at the at the meeting on Tuesday morning, like, you know, how do we get all those white people down the street in here? And and they're probably maybe a little bit suspicious of like, okay, you know, if if a bunch of white folks come in, are they going to, what are their motives? What do they want to try to start telling us what to do and how to be and all that? So, you know what I mean? I, and I'm, I'm happy to be wrong. You know, you, you tell me, but yeah. No, I mean, I think that's, that's likely right as someone who's not a churchgoer, but I would, I would think that also they're concerned about people clapping off beat. Yeah. <laughs> that's like that's like a gonna, terrible it's going to throw off the rhythm. That's a terrible sin. <laughs> that's a terrible sin. You know, like the last thing you want to do is in the middle of like a, a really good service and and hearing that off beat clap. <laughs> that's a, that's an awful thing to happen in the middle of, of the service. Um so you know, but these things are just the ways in which I try to like pull this apart, right? Because, you know, white Christian nationalism to me like climate change. And what I mean by that is that in the same way that climate change is often talked about by the privileged as something that's going to happen in the future, it's, it's happening now. And there's also sometimes a certain sort of like defeatism to it, right? That like, oh, it's so big, like, what am I going to do? You know, fuck it. Right. And I feel like white Christian nationalism can feel like that. Right. Where it's like, oh, this is something that I saw that special dateline. You know, I saw American history X, you know, like there's all these like little ways in which people feel they kind of touch it, you know, the January 6th. Right. But then it kind of goes away. Right. So it becomes this thing in the future. And then also it can feel so all-encompassing that you don't know where to start to kind of create a different vein, right? So I won't even say like, oh, there's no counter-narrative because I think there's tons of counter-narratives, right? There's lots of people of all different backgrounds, of all different faiths, of, of all different everything that are talking about a different liberatory present and future. And so I'm I'm always trying to get at what is so seductive about this particular view, because it seems like it kind of sucks, even for them. <laughs> a, it does. It does, because I've lived it. And so I can tell you, it does suck. I'll just testify to that right now. But I think, you know, I, I think, again, the allure is certainty and safety. And one of the things I've maintained for years on my on my own show is that when it comes to being a white person in this country, your nervous system is conditioned to be nervous and afraid and anxious around other types of bodies. And so white Christian nationalism is a way to kind of build this safe bubble from others and to give yourself a story that makes sense. And one of the other things I'll, I'll just say real quick, and 
I've been in context where people don't like it when I say this and and don't understand it, but you talked a lot about like the food being better at Black Church. And I talked a lot about like eating the food at at the Buddhist temple. And, you know, what we're talking about there are like cultural and ethnic histories that provide people with food and ritual and participation and community. And in ways that uh, may be religious and maybe not, right? It, it it, It may not require you to be religious to obviously participate in certain foods certain holidays, certain remembrances, so on and so forth. You know, whiteness is not a culture. Whiteness is just power. Whiteness is just a category that says we want dominance. And so when somebody says white culture, I think that's that's an oxymoron. White people got rid of their culture so they could be white, right? So like there's a difference between being Danish and white. Now, don't get me wrong. Danish people are white and they, they enjoy white privilege. I'm not trying to get out of that. I'm saying though that if you're a Danish person and you live in Denmark and you make actual Danish food and you do Danish things, you have a context in which you have a cultural milieu that you're practicing. In this country, most white folks have no cultural milieu, right? I mean, I like live, laugh, living and laughing and loving. That's not a culture. Live, laugh, love is not, I mean, come on. You know, I like chicken wings and chilies, but that's not, uh, that's not a culture. Come on, let's be real. So, you know, if you're a white person, a lot of times I think you're flailing around for like, what's my story? What's my culture? You know, everyone else gets one and it's like, oh yeah, white Christian national. Okay. Yeah, this is cool. Okay. We'll get in there with white Christian nationalism. We'll get the church going and we'll get the blue line flag and we'll get all of the the symbols and the stickers on my car and the talk radio. Okay. I found my, I found my culture and it does suck, but unfortunately it's, you know, it's very alluring to, to white people who are looking for some kind of identity, you know? But the folks at, at the top of this food chain, right? you know, the Tucker Carlson's of the world and, you know, he, and he's a, a media performer, right? So he might not even be the best example for what I'm trying to get at here, but like those that we talked about at the beginning, um, or maybe that was a sort of the beginning talking about like the Federalist Society, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, the, the roots of the, of the John Birch Society, right? Like these are people that are not rolling around in the F-150s doing all that kind of stuff. Right. Like to be clear, these are wealthy folks. Right. They are also to what extent you want to call having like a certain background. You know, this is a class argument. But, you know, I think even even January 6th, like when I started reading more about a lot of the people there, they were rich people. Right. Like they were flying to D.C., staying for days. Like, you know, they make it seem like this was, you know, some sort of poor person's march from the sticks of Alabama and West Virginia and all the rest of these places to go take the capital. I'm like, nah, these were wealthy people, you know, or at least most had a certain amount of privilege and standing to be able to go on this fool's errand, right? So how do we juxtapose the brand of what this is with the reality of the people who are creating these very well-organized and complex social structures that influence government, both nationally and local. Yeah, I think I think one thing, and this is different according to different examples, but among those elites, many of them are true believers, right? So I think if we take Ginny Thomas or if we take Mike Pompeo, those are real believers. They, they actually believe this stuff. They're not play acting. Now, someone like Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, a little bit of a different story. However, I think what the story has been for a long time, and this goes back way beyond and way before you know, the, the current Fox News lineup, is if you sell a story that says to the white Christian, there are people above you who are elites. Now, elite in this case means the government, the state, the knowledge producers, the Fauci's, the professors, the Hollywood actors. They think they know more than you about your family and your country, and thus they are your enemy, okay? However, there are others right? Who are, and we won't say it exactly this way out loud, but they are below you. They are immigrants. They are black people. They are people of color. They are queer folks. And they're trying to kind of take what you have. They're not happy accepting their role. So they're below you. And you got to fight above the elites and you got to fight below to all these folks that you see is lower than you on the, on the hierarchy. And that's the tale that's been spun right? That's the tale that's been widely, widely, widely successful is they're against elites. And and this is a class issue. It's all about class and money. And I'm like, look, when you picture the Trump voter, please do not picture just and only and exclusively 
and first, the underprivileged person living in a very rural area in this country. You should need to picture the guy living outside of Richmond, Virginia, who owns like four car dealerships, or the white guy who's a realtor in like suburban Los Angeles. Those folks are very much the heart of this movement, not simply the rural white person that you think just, you know, is, is being duped by a con man like Trump. So I think that's all part of the game. And I think that story has been told and told and told and time again in, in this country going back centuries. I agree with that. And I remember there was an article, I don't know if it was in the New York, but just like a few years ago where they did like a pretty comprehensive breakdown of voting in Connecticut vis-a-vis the Republican primary. And it was interesting because you still had um, Jeb Bush in the race. And as much as, again, the Bushes are kind of like a perfect example of this, they've kind of retooled themselves as kind of salt of the earth Texans when it's like, nah, motherfucker, y'all are from Connecticut. Like, you know, your grandfather was a senator. Like, you know, you've been at this a long time. And, and over the years, people kind of forget that blue blood patrician shit for their kind of ah shucks golly bullshit, right? So this article talked about how Jeb Bush was considered at the beginning kind of the front runner. Trump wasn't really considered at all. And, and the Republican kind of machine in Connecticut was very well organized to support candidates like Jeb Bush, right? His grandfather had been a senator there. There's all the shit. And it broke quite dramatically for Trump. And it kind of talked about the whys of that, right? So I think that's very much in line with what you just elucidated. I, I wish I could find the article. If I do, I'll put it in the, in the show notes. It's a pretty interesting read. But when we say this story's been told, I agree with you, but then it also feels like every time we're talking about white Christian nationalism or Trump voters, which you, one can say they're the same thing, or GOP voters, really, like I'm not even going to break it out to be Trump. It's still this sort of, let's get into the heartland and find out what the working class are saying, right? Which I find to be a, a kind of disgusting argument on many levels because it implies, A, that working class people only come from these places. And, you know, again, it highlights the heartland in some way as if a person in Ohio or Nebraska or Iowa somehow has more legitimacy to talking about the future of America than someplace, somebody else, right? So Brooklyn doesn't matter. We got to go out to Des Moines, right? Or wherever the fuck. So I'm curious why you've shared this story. Others have shared that story. But when you look at more popular media, they're still going back to that well, right? Like why the disconnect, especially given the amount of scholarship and the recent events of January 6th? It's fear. It's it's Christian. It's white Christian privilege. So we all, you know, we talk about white privilege, but Christianity is in the media in this country still privileged. It's still treated with a kind of set of kid gloves. If you're a Christian candidate, if you talk about, I'm a man of God, I'm a father, husband, pastor, you are given the benefit of the doubt. And then when the media is like, okay, let's talk. And so let's think about that term heartland. What you're saying is, is that I'm going to go to the place that is the heart of the land. I'm going to go to the heart of the country, not right. And the heart meaning the most important organ that keeps the place going. You know, you say, yeah, we're not going to go to Brooklyn. And, and, and I'm also thinking of like, well, why don't you go to Houston? Houston's like the third or fourth biggest city in the country, right? Depending on what Chicago says. And Houston has so many black people, so many brown people, lots of Asian people in Houston. But you never call that the heartland, right? How come, you know? How come it's not Atlanta, right? How come it's not Milwaukee? And so I guess my answer is, the media continues to envision the real American as the white rural, the white person living in, as you say, Des Moines or in Kansas City or somewhere in the Midwest rather than right in any of those other places. And I say this in the book, you know, you watch The Simpsons, they think of white Christians as Ned Flanders, you know, moral, irritating, don't cuss, don't drink too much beer, hidey ho neighbor, do you want to come to church? And like Ned Flanders is so annoying, but he's not dangerous. But you know, Mr. Burns is dangerous. He's authoritarian. He's cruel. He wants to rule the whole city without any checks on his power. That's what the white Christian nationalists really are, Mr. Burns. But the media is always like, no, they're Flanders. Let's just see what they what they think. Come on. Oh, it's oh, Heidi Ho. Let's okay. What do you think about today's events, Ned? And that's that's the issue. I mean, to me, that's the biggest problem. 
Yeah. It's it's a it's an interesting analogy. And I anything that brings in the Simpsons yeah. is always <laughs> is always welcome, right? For all my life, we've been having this conversation about hypocrisy, right? And oh, you know, if hypocrisy will bring them all down, right? We've had like was it um, was it Jim Baker crying on TV, you know, TV, you know, I've sinned against my family, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, like when Trump was first running, it's like, oh, there's no way they'll vote for, you know, the three time divorced New York philanderer. Right. Hypocrisy is not really a compelling counter narrative. Right. Because I think like Jon Stewart gets a lot of kudos for doing this. Right. Like he kind of, you know, very serious faced and kind of gray haired and wizened will will take the conservative to task and show them all the ways in which they're, you know, hypocrites, as if the light bulb is going to go on and all these other folks are going to say, you know what, damn it, we're, we are on the side of guns. That's not very Christian. And that never happens, right? So why? <laughs> why do we continue to go to this hypocrisy argument? So I think that it's easy to, to boil this down to belief. You know, hey, you know, I got this cousin on Facebook who's always spouting all this nonsense about MAGA and Big Lie and QAnon. I'm going to show them the data. I'm going to show them the numbers. I'm going to show them how the sources they're using are stupid. And when we have those conversations, they go nowhere. People argue. They they don't listen. It, it's pointless. One of the things that I have tried to come to grips with is that this is a lot about feeling. It's a lot about emotion. It's a lot about, like, affect. And so when you reveal the hypocrisy of the congressperson as John Stewart, or you catch them in a kind of incoherency, or maybe they actually, you know, Herschel Walker, right? Maybe paid for some abortions. Okay. Doesn't matter all that much because the person that they're trying to reach wants to know about feeling. Are you going to restore the, the safe America they want? Are you going to get the bad guys that are threatening their way of life? Sure, Trump. Yeah, he has a gold toilet and he like says all kinds of nonsense and blah, blah. But he's going to beat up the people I want beat up. He knows that those people are unsafe. So he's going to go get them for me. Okay. He's my guy. Yeah, he's he's complete nonsense. I have no idea what he's talking about half the time. Don't care. He says he's, he's the bully on the playground that'll help me. So let's do it, you know? And so I think that's something we have to keep in mind when all these things happen. Yeah. And, and Herschel Walker definitely paved some abortions. If I, <laughs> if I had to... If I had to look up the picture of a dude who looked like he paid for some abortions in his life, that person pretty much looks like Herschel Walker. <laughs> like he might not be named Herschel Walker, but he look a lot like Herschel Walker. <laughs> so we're gonna assume he went and paid for all them abortions. Um, you know, we we spent a lot of time kind of talking about the American story, you know. But I think what's really interesting and, and what's it's fun to kind of pull into this is that this is a, a global phenomenon, right? And and we're we're seeing politics make stred, strange bedfellows. So, you know, Christian nationalism seems to make strange bedfellows, right? With people that may have been, again, traditionally thought of as American enemies now become folks that these people seem to want to become closer to, right? Someone like Ron DeSantis at the time that we're recording this very recently said, oh, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I shouldn't try to quote him. I don't know exactly what he said, but it was, it was pretty much kind of pro-Russia. Oh, yeah. It, to the extent that it was like, I don't know how much we should do this Ukraine thing, right? Which is a vis-a-vis -vis pro-Russian argument, right? And I think that would have been fairly unheard of in, in most conservative Republican circles to seemingly cozy up to a quote unquote enemy of the state, right? So the the global connectivity in these movements is something that I think is very important, but less covers. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. You know, one of the things that I, I try to show very clearly in the book is that white Christian nationalism does not hold democracy to be a sacred value. So if they don't have the majority, they're just gonna find other ways to have power. That's That's how they think. And so authoritarianism starts to be very attractive. We don't have the votes and there's a growing number of folks that are not with us. We might need non-democratic forms, i.e. authoritarian or, or autocratic uh, forms of governance that will actually lead to what we want in the country. So when you think about it that way, 
it makes sense that they start looking and people think the Russia thing started in, with Trump. Like going back to the 90s, why Christian nationalist leaders identified Russia as like, you know, now that they're no longer communist, it looks like they're moving towards this kind of consolidated power model. And then Putin emerges, right, in the last 10, 15 years as this leader of the one of the whitest nations on earth. He's always talking about Russia's spiritual heritage, its Christian values, its protecting the family. He marches immigrants out of the city. He just walks them out, doesn't wait for laws or, you know, the Supreme Court or Congress. He puts gay people in jail. This is the leader, the white Christian nationalist is like, that's who we need. Who cares about the electoral college and all this other business? I just want a guy like that. I want a guy that just does what we need done. I don't want democracy if it means we can have that guy. So they also look to like Viktor Orban or Bolsonaro and are like, these are our dudes. These are our dude. These are the men. And you'll hear this from white Christian nationalist women, like men used to be men. I mean, I, I can quote you a, a candidate for Senate in Delaware in 2020, who's like, I would rather have Putin as my leader than Biden. And it's because he's a white Christian nationalist authoritarian autocrat. And it's very attractive to them because democracy is not a sacred value. And I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned women because I feel in this conversation, we've, been, we've mentioned a lot of men by name. And even by tone, I think it sounds like this is just dupes, right? Like you mentioned trucks and guns and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, there's a lot of women that are in this movement. And I, and I would argue that white women are in many ways the backbone of a lot of these movements. Jesse Daniels is someone who I've had on the show before, and she's written a book, you know, Nice White Ladies, right? Kind of talking about how the very nature of the white feminine allows for them to enact incredible amounts of physical and psychological violence on other on other people. So I wanted to leave space to kind of invite us to talk about like this is not just a male thing. That there's a lot of women that are full on committed to these kind of movements. One hundred percent. And I'll shout out a book that I think really makes this clear, and that's Sarah Mosliner a book called Virgin Nation. And she really argues that white feminine innocence has been used as a very formidable weapon throughout American history. And that's pretty clear, right? If you think about Emmett Till, if you think about the Birth of a Nation film, if you think about the ways that, you know, black men were characterized as violent and, and hypersexual after the Civil War and white women were going to be attacked. And right, once again, everything I talked about like 20 minutes ago, I want to be safe. I want to be ensconced in a, in a safe bubble. I don't want the vulnerabilities of all these other people and all these things in life. Well, what's the best way to distill that? The innocent white woman who's just being attacked and, and is afraid, right? And so that's all part of this. Uh, just yesterday, I was teaching my class. We talked about Maribel Morgan from 1975 and, and Phyllis Schlafly from that era. And the ways that those two white women really sort of marched forward an anti-feminist, anti-ERA kind of vision of what it meant to be a woman in the United States. And then we talked all the way about, we moved all the way forward to the present and we went through on Instagram, all the trad wife stuff. And if y'all don't know what a trad wife is, just hashtag trad wife on, on Instagram. We talked about the quiverful movement and the ways that many Christian women are rejecting, you know, things like birth control and, and other, other things in order to have eight and 10 and 12 and 15 children because they think that's what God wants. And so white women are the backbone of this. And this is not just a male thing by any means. And patriarchy in this case uh, is really cultivated by uh, the support of women who see it as God ordained and the men who live it out uh, happily. So it, it's all tied together. You know, we, we could do like a whole show on that, right? You know, and, and again, there's that normalization through pop culture, right? There's all those, um, like there was that family back in the day where they had like a thousand kids, like eight- The Duggars. Nine, 10 kids. 19 kids. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of, of that, right? That it's just, it's so gross, but it's everywhere, you know? And it, and it just permeates in, in so many subtle ways, you know? Like, you know, it's not to say that I think, I think that was like a TLC show or one of those type of networks, you know? It's, it's just interesting what makes air, right? Like what gets like put on TV for people to watch in the first place, you know, things like Sister Wives and all these kind of, you know, weird shows about these lifestyles that center this toxic maleness, right? 
and everyone's in cahoots, you know, everyone's arm in arm in it. Um, you know, it's fascinating stuff. I mean, the book is goes into such amazing detail, you know, and they are preparing for war as a pacifist. I'm not one for conflict, but I, I do believe that we are best served by being as knowledgeable as possible about these movements, how deep they go. I feel one of the reasons why January 6th was so successful, by successful, I mean gaining entry to so many of these spaces is like, people are like, oh, where were the authorities? I'm like, they are the authorities, right? Like a lot of law enforcement in these movements, right? At, at all levels, military. So they are definitely preparing for war and we got to find and continue to build a future that does not include that vision. <laughs> Amen. I agree with that. I agree with that. I ain't, I ain't going back to the 50s. I'm not your boot black. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I want to just do the drop. So we're going to, in such a serious but yet vital conversation, I didn't want to have a whole off the dome thing to kind of throw off our energy. I think we did manage to have a couple of laughs in here, um, despite the very, very seriousness of, of this subject matter. So the drop is just an opportunity for us to share anything we can about that our listeners might want to check out. And I had one, but I'm actually going to give two. Because when you mentioned um, Phyllis Shafley, like I had her in my notes to kind of talk about, we didn't get a chance to talk a lot about her. Horrible, horrible human being. <laughs> Just terrible. Like I'm not one of those people who like pretend to respect these people. They are horrible human beings. And and there's a actually very well done miniseries called Mrs. America that was um, here in the US. It was on Hulu. Globally, it might be on something else. But I, I highly recommend that folks watch this I, because I think it did not only a, a good job of talking about the counter movement to the ERA, but it showed the challenges with true intersectional movements on the other side, um, the pro ERA side, right? So I think it did those two things really well and clearly elucidated that Phyllis Shafley was a terrible, terrible human. And the other original drop that I had was a documentary, and I've recommended this before, but given the subject matter, I think it's worth surfacing it again. And it's called Exterminate All the Brutes. And it is on um, HBO Max here in the US. Again, it could be on another service globally, but it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful, and when I say wonderful, it's like hard to watch documentary about what blackness as typified by this idea of brutes has meant globally. And Exterminate All the Brutes is, a, is an excerpt taken from a, a, a book that became the, the name of this documentary. And it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful documentary. I, I would have watched it more times had it not been so difficult to watch the first time around, but worth watching at least once. And so those are my two drops. <laughs> So you're up, my friend. Uh, there's so many. So one, I would I would say that if if folks want something that is a little bit um, scandalous to watch and it's kind of fun, but will really, really do a good job of introducing you to everything we talked about today. On Hulu, there's a documentary about Jerry Falwell Jr. and the pool boy and his wife uh, and that whole scandal. It is kind of fun because there's a lot of like kind of scandalous things in there. You know, Anthea Butler from University of Pennsylvania, who's an amazing scholar, Randall Balmer, Matthew Sutton, they're all in there as experts talking about all this stuff. And they really do a good job like explaining this. So if you have time to watch that, it's an hour and a half and it'll really help you kind of get some some sense of what's going on here. I'll also I'll I'll plug the book I just mentioned because I think it is worth worth reading. It's called Virgin Nation. It's by Sarah Mosliner, who teaches at Central Michigan University. But she basically traces purity culture, this idea that was prevalent in a lot of churches in the 90s, all the way back to the 19th century, to the end of the Civil War. And she shows how white female innocence has been used as a weapon since then, whether we're talking about Reconstruction, whether we're talking about Birth of a Nation, the KKK, whether we're talking about uh, a welfare queen language by Ronald Reagan, so on and so forth. So that's a great book. Um, it's a little more heady. But uh, I think if you can get through that book, it will really change the way you think about these things. That's awesome. Both great drops. And I, and I have seen the Hulu special. It's really good. And entertaining, but also like shocking at the, again, the hypocrisy. It's the hypocrisy part. Yeah. The hypocrisy is just, it's just crazy. But Falwell's wife was, was out there. <laughs> 
<laughs> she was definitely living her best life. And so, you know, so was he, you know, that's the crazy thing about it. Like folks should definitely watch it. I don't have a problem with anything they were doing in the documentary. I'm just like, you know what? Just let you want to live. Let everybody else live. Exactly. Totally agree. Right. You ain't hurting nobody. Do whatever you want to do, man. Watch from around the corner. Do whatever, man. Live your life, you know? Just don't tell everyone else it's wrong. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Brad, I want to I want to thank you so much for for being on the show. You know, you've you continue to really do amazing work. I I can't recommend the book enough. I think it is such a a vital addition to folks really understanding just how deep these worlds go, how important it is for us to be aware of it, and again, for us to tell better liberatory future stories so we can fight a war that we all end up winning, you know, contrary to their war. So thanks so much for being on the Deep Dive with me. Uh, thanks for having me, and thank you for reading and, and for all those great questions. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at farflungphil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.